Well, good morning. Apparently, we talked to the wrong manager at Bachman's before we shot that video, and they weren't excited about us being there. And so Kenny and I shot that video as fast as we possibly could, and then we ran out the front door. They were, they were really excited to get us out of there, stop interrupting all of their customers that were in there uh, buying things. Uh, very excited to be a part of worship here in Shakopee today and to lead us through the next sermon in our sermon series called Romans Road. We're in the third part of this Romans Road series where we're looking at Romans chapter 9 through chapter 11. And as we do today, we're going to spend some time in Romans chapter 10 and we have an opportunity to meet with the living God in the pages of his word. Is anybody excited about meeting with the living God in the pages of his word this morning? That's the opportunity that we have. So turn with me to Romans chapter 10. And as we look at Romans 10 today, we're going to ask the primary question, the biggest question that a person can ask over the course of their life. And that question is, how can I be saved? How can I be saved? When I'm teaching with kids, about salvation and how I can be saved, I often open with an illustration that will be familiar to you guys because I use it all the time, about traveling through the open sea and you're, you're in a boat and all of a sudden you fall off the back in the middle of the Atlantic and the boat keeps going and so there you are in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, hundreds of miles from the nearest shore and you are just treading water. There is nothing on the horizon. It's just you. What's going to happen to you as you tread water for hours and hours there floating in the middle of the sea? By the way, good for you that you can tread water all of that time. Nice work. All right, what's going to happen? You are going to grow tired. It's a lot of work to tread water, especially for that long. You're going to grow hungry. There's no food out there for you to eat. As counterintuitive as it may seem, you're going to get thirsty. You're surrounded by water and none of it is drinkable. If you're in the middle of the Atlantic, you'll probably go cold. The water's cold in most of the Atlantic. And let's say that as you're floating there, treading water to stay on top, all of a sudden on the horizon you see a ship. And the ship's coming your direction. And as the ship pulls up, you're splashing around and trying to get the ship's attention. And the ship says, what do you want? What do you ask for at that moment? Now you're cold, but the first thing you ask for is not a coat. And you're hungry, but the first thing you ask for is not a sandwich. You're tired, but the first thing you ask for is not a pillow. The first thing you ask for is what? A lifesaver, right? You want one of those flotation devices thrown to you, and you want them to pull you up on top of the ship. Because all of those other things may be true, but none of them matter if you're not saved. And in the same way, we have a lot of different felt needs and wants in this life. They're real, but none of them matter. If we're not saved, Romans has taught us as we've walked through the first nine chapters that we are a people who are born drowning in our sins and the punishment for those sins. That we've disobeyed God, we've sinned against Him, we've lived in selfishness, that because of that, there is rightfully punishment upon us. And we are drowning in that sin and in that punishment. And what we need more than anything else in life is to be saved from drowning in our sins. That's what we need most of all. And Romans chapter 10 is going to be all about how a person can be saved. How a person can be saved from their sins. 
And Paul starts his conversation by showing us the wrong pathway to be saved. He wants the Jews who are reading this to understand that if they have been using the pathway of trying to do enough good works through the law, that is not the correct pathway to be saved. And so he opens up chapter 10 with these words. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, that is the Jews, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. They're trying to get to God, but not according to knowledge. They're trying to get to God, but they're doing it in all of the wrong ways. What is the wrong way that they're using? Hi. Oh, that's okay. Perfect. I thought we, I thought we were going to have a fun illustration. <laughs> Bummer. All right. What is the wrong way that they're going about being saved? For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, their own righteousness, that is. They did not submit to God's righteousness. They worked so very hard to try and be righteous and good on their own, and because of that, they've missed out on the one way a person can actually be righteous, and that's through the righteousness of God. Verse 4, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The way to salvation and righteousness isn't by working really hard to be good. The way to salvation is only through Christ. All of the law pointed to Him, and He is the way that a person can be saved. I want you to hang on to that word believes for a minute. The wrong pathway for us to be saved is to try and work really hard to be good. Why is that the wrong pathway? Why won't it work? Because I can't possibly be good enough to be in God's presence. God is perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, perfectly pure, perfectly loving. And in order to be in His presence, I need to be perfect in all of those ways. And I'm not. Hosea chapter 1 verse 13 says He can't even look upon sin. 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16 calls on us to be holy as God is holy. 1 John 3, 3 says we are to be pure as God is pure. John 13, 34 says we're to love as Christ loves. That's perfect holiness, perfect purity, perfect love. In order to be in God's presence, I need to be like Him, to be a part of His holy family, and I'm not, which is why James chapter 2, verse 10 says that for any person who fails according to the law, keeps the law but fails at just one point, they are guilty of breaking all of it. Because God is perfect in His righteousness. He's perfect in His holiness. To break the law in one point means we don't get to be with Him. I, I can't even be holy for a week, let alone for my whole life. Right? Anybody else? I can't even be holy for a week, let alone my whole life. My wife and I, a couple weeks ago, we did a road trip to Alabama. And when we got in the car in the morning to leave our house... I had a couple of things that were occupying my mind. And as I was thinking about them and stewing on them, I was being cranky and grumpy and argumentative. And my wife, as we were driving down 35, said, uh, you seem like you're kind of cranky and grumpy this morning. I thought about it for a minute. Then I prayed about it for a minute. And I was convicted. Yes! I was being selfish, 
and a jerk and cranky and grumpy and, and argumentative. And so I confessed to the Lord. I confessed to my wife what was going on. I apologized to her, and I made a commitment right there, right then. I am not going to be cranky and grumpy and selfish anymore on the way to Alabama. Two hours later, <laughs> as we're driving along, we wind up dead stopped on the freeway. And can you guess what I was like during that period of time? I was patient. I was kind. No, I wasn't at all. <laughs> right? I was cranky and I was grumpy and I was selfish. I couldn't even be holy for two hours. I just committed, I'm going to be holy the rest of the way to Alabama. I couldn't make it two hours, let alone a week, let alone a lifetime, which is what is required to be in the very presence of God if I'm relying upon my own righteousness. I can't do it. It's not the pathway to salvation. So then what is the pathway to salvation? Well, now he's going to unlock what the pathway to salvation truly is. For Moses writes about the righteousness that's based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But none of us, of course, obey all of the commandments. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. Well, if you read that passage and you're a little bit confused about what it's saying, that's great. I was too the first time I read it. I believe what it is saying is this. The way to salvation is through Christ's great and heroic deeds, not your own great and heroic deeds. E even if your understanding is that you can go into heaven and bring Christ to earth so that he has to live on the earth, which you can't do, by the way. There's no need for that because Christ has already come as the God-man and lived upon the earth. Even if you could do the heroic deed of going into the abyss and raising Christ up from the dead, what an amazing heroic deed. There's no need for that. Christ has already been raised from the dead. Our salvation isn't based on being able to do good enough and heroic enough deeds like pulling Christ to the earth or bringing him up out of the dead. It's entirely based on the fact that he has done those heroic deeds. He came to earth. He rose from the dead. And our role isn't to do good and heroic deeds. Our role in salvation is to have, what's the underlined word there? Faith. Or, or the end of verse 4, belief. That's our role. We're to be a people of faith who believe and trust in Jesus. He goes in deeper on how we can be saved in the next verses. But what does it say? The word is near you. Here's an Old Testament quote. In your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. What is the real pathway to salvation? Believe and confess. What's the real pathway to salvation? It isn't doing enough good works to earn our way to God, keeping enough of the Old Testament law to earn our way there. It is believe and confess. Now, it's possible as we sit here this morning that you're saying, wait a minute, I thought I was saved through faith alone. 
right? Faith and belief, that makes sense to me. But what is this business about confessing with our mouth? Why is it necessary that I confess Jesus as Lord with my mouth? Confessing Jesus as Lord with our mouth is essential because our faith or our belief is an inner matter. It is when we confess Jesus with our mouth that what is true inside makes its way out. Jesus says, out of the overflow of the heart, what? The mouth speaks. And it is through our confession of Jesus, our living confession of Jesus, that we are making what is true inside visible outside. I want you to think about what an incredible movement of loyalty it was in this day for them to confess Jesus as Lord in the waters of baptism. If you were a Jew and you decided to get baptized and confess Jesus as Lord of your life, you were cut off from your family. You were cut off from the worshiping community that you had been with your entire life. If you were a Gentile and you confessed Jesus as Lord, again, in all likelihood, you were cut off from your family. More than that, if you had some sort of business by which you were making money, you made money as a part of that business under the authority of Caesar, who had to be declared to be Lord. When you declared Jesus as Lord, you put your business in jeopardy. You may very well no longer have a way to make a living. And so when they confessed Jesus as Lord, this was life-altering. It completely changed their life. And so Paul says, yes, you are saved through faith and belief, and that faith and belief always makes its way out to the outside by confessing Jesus as Lord, which is why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 and 33, so everyone who acknowledges me before man... I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Faith always makes its way out through our mouth. We must believe and confess. What is it that we need to believe and confess? Well, let's change the underlined words up there. First thing we need to believe and confess is that Jesus is Lord. What does it mean, Jesus is Lord? Uh, think about the culture in Paul's day 2,000 years ago where you had large households and someone owned that house. They were the Lord of the house. Then there were servants within the framework of that house. And what was the role of the servants? To do whatever the Lord told them to do in that household. Their job day in and day out was to do what the Lord of the household commanded them to do in order to make that household run and function appropriately. That was the role of the Lord in the house and the servants in the house. And in order for us to be a people who are saved, we're told that we need to believe and confess that Jesus is Lord, that our lives are dedicated to Him, that whatever He calls us to do, we're going to do. That's what it means for Jesus to be Lord. I want you to notice here that he doesn't say, in order to be saved, you need to believe and confess that Jesus is Savior. Now, that's true, and it's beautiful. But in order for Jesus to be our Savior, what the Bible teaches is we need to believe and confess that He is Lord. 
king over our lives. We believe it, we confess it. The second thing we're told that we need to believe and confess is that God raised Jesus from the dead. In our world, virtually everybody believes in Jesus in some way. Some people believe that Jesus was a man who lived in history 2,000 years ago whose life has virtually no impact on life today. Others believe that Jesus was a great teacher who has some moral principles that we should study and learn. Others believe that Jesus was a social revolutionary and that we should follow him into social revolution today. There's all sorts of different beliefs and understandings about Jesus. But what the scripture makes clear is that in order for us to be saved, we don't get to believe in Jesus whatever way we want to believe in him. We are to believe in the Jesus who got up out of the grave, proving that he was the God-man with all authority to forgive us of our sins. That he is the very Son of God who is alive today and mediates between God and man right now. That is what the Scripture tells us we need to believe if we're to be saved. And if I will believe and confess in my life Jesus is Lord. He is king over my life. And if I will believe and confess, he got up out of the grave. He is the God-man. Then I can be, what's the word? Saved. I can be saved. Is it just me that can be saved? Is there any hope for you guys? The next verse seems to indicate, yes, there's hope for you. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls upon the Lord, who who believes and confesses that he is the Son of God who got up out of the grave, that he is alive today, That he is the Son of God who is Lord and King over our life. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord can be saved. It doesn't matter your gender, your age, your race, your background. It doesn't matter the sins that you have committed in your background. None of that matters. What matters is, will you call on the name of the Lord today? Will you place your faith in him and confess Jesus as Lord today? Because then we can be saved. All right, the sermon's not over, so don't get excited. But I want to take a pause right now and just invite everybody in here right now to bow your heads and spend a moment with the Lord and make sure that this is true of you, that you are saved, that you have trusted in Him and confessed Him as Lord and King over your life, the Son of God got up out of the grave. If you haven't, is today the day that you believe in your heart, in your mind, that Jesus is God in the flesh? Is today the day you submit your life fully to him as king? That you confess, God, I don't want to be be king over my own life anymore. I don't want to be Lord over my own life. I don't want to do things my way. I want to live for you. Is today that day?
Is today the day that you confess it with your mouth to those around you? Is today the day you sign up to confess it in the waters of baptism on Easter? As we continue on through Romans chapter 10 here, Paul has outlined how a person can be saved, and now he's going to address what is a natural and important question. What about the people in my life who aren't saved? What about, what about the people in my life who haven't believed and confessed in Jesus as the risen Lord? Anyone have people like that in your life? Anyone? Friends? Coworkers? Family? Neighbors? Yeah, yeah, all of us, right? We all do. So what do we do in those situations? Paul's got a couple of keys for us here. And the first is pray. Go back to verse 1. I kind of skipped over this. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, the Jews, is that they may be saved. Paul says there, there is this group of Jews. It's a large group. And they have rejected the Messiah. They have refused to trust in Christ for their salvation. And what is Paul's attitude toward them? He says, I'm glad you're going to get what you're going to get. You rejected the Messiah. No, that's not Paul's attitude toward them. What's his attitude? His heart breaks for them. He desires more than anything that they would be saved. And so he prays for them and for their salvation. This is the prayer that we are to pray for people in our lives who don't know Jesus. We are to pray for their salvation. What good does it do to pray for other things in their life? Jesus says, what good does it do a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? What good does it do us to pray that other people's lives might have blessings in them if they don't have Jesus' salvation? This is the prayer for those who don't know him. As a matter of fact, I would, I would caution us against praying for smoother sailing for those who don't know Jesus. Because often what people need who are running away from Jesus are storms to come into their life. When Jonah was running away from the Lord on that boat, did he need smooth sailing away from God? No, he needed huge storms to come into his life. When the prodigal ran away from his father, did he need life to just go smoothly? No, he needed to absolutely hit rock bottom so that he would reach the place where he was eating the pig food. And then and only then did he reach a place where he said, I can't live like this. I need the Lord. I need, I need the Father. Let me caution us against praying for smooth sailing in the life of those who don't know the Lord. Our prayer for them is that they would know Jesus. Because what they may need more than anything are the storms of life to bring them to that point. Uh, this morning, I'd like to call special attention to us praying for kids and grandkids who grow up in the church who need Jesus. Why kids and grandkids who grow up in the church? Because I think they're the closest parallel to the group that Paul is praying for here. Who is Paul praying for here? Who, whose salvation is he interested in? The Jews. 
And as Paul pointed out in Romans chapter 9, the Jews had all of the advantages. He says in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 9, They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all. He says Israel had all of the advantages, and yet they've chosen not to follow after Jesus. Well, who is it that has all of the advantages today? It's kids who grow up in the church. It's kids who grow up in the church hearing about Jesus. Kids who grow up in the church hearing the gospel message. Kids who grow up in the church around people who live godly examples for them. No, not everybody, but many godly examples. It is kids in the church that have all of the advantages, and yet, like with the Israelites, many choose not to follow after Jesus. What is the number one thing that we can do about that? We can get on our knees and pray. There is nothing that we can do that is more powerful and more impactful than what the Lord can do. We don't have control over people's hearts, and so what do we need to do? We need to be a praying people for the kids and grandkids that are growing up in the church. Pray for them. Uh, as parents, we work hard to control the influences in our kids' lives, to make sure that they're only in certain environments, all of which can be very helpful parenting. But there's absolutely nothing more important as a parent that I can do than get on my knees before the Lord and pray for God's grace to shine into my kids' lives and for them to accept that great gift and to live with Him as their Lord. That's the great calling that I have as a parent. The great calling that many of you have as grandparents is to pray for the salvation of our kids and grandkids who are growing up in the church. We want to be praying for all of those who don't have a relationship with Jesus in our life, our friends, our neighbors, our kids, our grandkids. That, that is call number one for those who aren't saved. Call number two goes right along with it, and that is to share Jesus to share the message of the gospel. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. A person can't call on Jesus unless they believe in Jesus. A person can't believe in Jesus unless they hear about Jesus. And a person can't hear about Jesus unless someone proclaims Jesus to them. You, you get the flow here. The, the word that is used here in this translation is preach. But it isn't a word that means to do what I'm doing right now, to come into the assemblies of the believers and speak God's word. It is simply a word that means to proclaim or be a herald of the news. And, and so all of us are called to this kind of preaching where we are the heralds of the news of Jesus. When, when my son was five years old, he was a herald. He was a proclaimer of news. He was a herald for dinosaurs. Right? Anyone else had a five-year-old in their home that was a herald for dinosaurs? And, and I don't just mean the common ones like T-Rex. He would talk to anyone about strengths and weaknesses of Parasaurolophus or Carcharodontosaurus or Spinosaurus aegypticus or whoever. At my uh, grandmother's memorial service, 
uh, he signed the guest book Jurassic Park as a five-year-old. I'm glad my grandfather had a great sense of humor. He, he was a herald about dinosaurs to anyone and everyone he'd come in contact with. He, he didn't really care if you wanted to talk about dinosaurs. You were going to talk about dinosaurs when you met this five-year-old because he was excited about them. And in a far greater way, right, we are called to be heralds, to be the proclaimers for a far more important message. For the Son of God become man die for sins on behalf of his people so that they might live forever with him. What an astounding story that we get to proclaim. What amazing changes he's made to our lives that we get to tell people about. What greatness there is in what he has done on our behalf. And he calls us to be those heralds, to be the people who share about him. I want to just say that for many people in the room, not everybody in the room, but for many people in the room, one of the greatest, if not the greatest mission field that God has given to you is your workplace. There are a lot of different mission fields that God has placed us in, but it may be that there's no greater mission field for you than your workplace. We may think of our workplace primarily as the place we go in order to accomplish the objectives of our company or the place we go in order to make a paycheck so I can pay my bills, but I guarantee that God sees your workplace primarily as the place for you to go and shine his light and to proclaim the message of Jesus. That is how he sees your workplace. The place of mission. In a recent survey, when people who had come to faith in Jesus Christ within the last year and had started to attend church within the last year, were asked, who is it that led you to this relationship with the Lord? Who is it that led you to church? The highest number by far, 40%, were coworkers who had led their coworkers into relationship with Jesus and to church. The next highest number was like 18 from family members. 40% said it was a coworker that brought me here. It was a coworker that introduced me to the message of Jesus. This is the great mission field that God has called us to. We are his heralds in our workplace. Now, is everyone who hears the message we bring as heralds going to respond and believe in Jesus as Lord and confess him? No, right? We don't have to read the scripture too long to recognize not everybody who hears the message is going to believe. And Paul wants to remind us of that, verse 16 and 17. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. Right? Why haven't the Jews obeyed the gospel? For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed that he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Well, wait, if faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, then shouldn't all the Jews believed? They've all heard. He goes on, but I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Not only do the Jews receive the message and hear the message, they have been proclaimers of the original message. But I asked, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Was the problem that the Jews didn't get to hear the gospel? No, they heard it. They met the living Savior. Was the problem that they didn't understand? No, they understood. And yet, as we will see next week, their hearts are still hard. 
their hearts are hard. Will everyone who hears and understands the message receive? No, because some people's hearts are still hardened. And what is God's attitude and response towards those with hard hearts? We see that in the final couple of verses. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I've been found by those who did not seek me, Gentiles. I've shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. These verses talk about the fate of the Gentiles and the fate of the Jews. First, he says, there were these Gentiles who were hardened against me. But now they are a part of my family. Why? Because they worked really hard at it? Because they earned it? No, because I am gracious and I am merciful and I have drawn Gentiles into the fellowship. Then talking about the Jews, he says, they have rejected Messiah, rejected Christ, rejected the way of salvation. And so what is God's attitude towards the Jews? He has folded his arms and turned his back, never to see them again. No, that's not what this passage says, is it? What is his attitude towards the Jews who have rejected his son as Messiah? His arms are open, his hands extended, desiring to show them grace and mercy if they will only turn back. Right? That is God's attitude towards Jew and Gentile alike. Arms open, hands extended, desiring to show grace and mercy to people. And if that's God's heart towards people, then what is his call on us as his followers? That we would have that same heart, ready to bring the message of God's grace and mercy to all of those around us. Are there lifestyles offensive to our morality? Maybe. What's our attitude towards them? Open arms, ready to show them grace and mercy, to proclaim the message to them of their need to submit to Jesus as Lord in their life. Do we completely disagree with them about some of the most important things in life? Yes. What's our attitude towards them? We fold our arms. We turn away never to speak to them again. No. Like the Lord, we stand with open arms, proclaiming a message of grace and mercy. Please turn. Place your trust in Jesus as your Lord. Make him king over your life. As the Lord stands with open arms, offering people an opportunity to repent, we come as his messengers, continuing with open arms, calling on people to repent. A couple of practical applications for us in how we do this. First, pray. Right? Pray. Make a list of people in your life that you can be praying for, for their salvation. If you're anything like me, and we'll forget all about it if you don't do it right now, then do it right now. Right? You, you've got a connect card. It's for a different purpose, but I don't care. Write the list on there if you need to. Put it in your phone. Uh, there's pens on the chair. Whatever you need, take time and make that list of people that you're going to be praying for, that God would be at work in their life, softening their heart to the gospel, opening their eyes that the enemy is seeking to blind so that they can be saved. Second, share the message with people. We've given you a little tool today that's meant to help with that, a bookmark. And that bookmark has verses on it. These verses are often referred to as the Romans Road. 
all verses from this book of Romans that as you walk through them, help us to understand I'm sinful before a holy God. And because of that sin, I deserve death, to be separated from God and all that is good. But, Romans 5, 8, Jesus in his love has died for you and for me. Because of that, instead of the punishment I rightly deserve, I can receive the great gift of grace, eternal life in Christ Jesus, if I will confess he is Lord and believe that he got up out of the grave. If I will turn to him and call to him, I can be saved. Let me encourage you to take that bookmark with you. Use it with those in your life. I would also say, if there are a handful of passages that you want to have memorized in your life, this is a great list to start with. To know the gospel through these passages so that you can pull them out at any time. It is a great memorization list. Memorize the list and be praying, God, give me opportunities to use these verses with people in my life. I want to be praying for and sharing with those who don't know him. Let me just encourage you to be doing those things. And even now, as you continue to make lists of those that you're going to be praying for, I'm going to transition us to spending some time at the Lord's table. It's not really a transition because every time we celebrate the Lord's table, what are we celebrating? We are celebrating the fact that Christ has given his life for us so that when we trusted in him, placed our faith in him, confessed him as our Lord, we were saved. And now we come and we celebrate that salvation and what he has done every time we come before the table. I want to invite you to spend a couple of moments right now preparing your heart, readying yourself to take these elements. And when you're ready, we're going to be standing and singing to the Lord. Make your way to the tables and get the cup and the bread and return to your seats and I'll lead us in taking those elements in just a few minutes. But right now, would you stand with me and let's continue to exalt God together.